You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hydepark.church. Turn to Acts chapter 5, if you don't mind. Acts chapter 5, I have a prayer request for you as you're finding your place. Our uh, children's ministry director, uh, Kelly Campbell, and her son and their school group from Dillon Christian School is on their way to the Holy Land, Israel. And they're going to be spending, I don't know, I think eight days in the Holy Land. And as you can imagine with all that's going on with coronavirus and, and all of the uh, stress that comes with that, there's quite a bit of anxiety with that group as they have already left, uh, probably uh, flying somewhere out of Tor- Toronto, Canada, heading towards Tel Aviv. Uh, this is Kelly's first time on a plane. And Philip's first time on a plane. And I know that she would greatly appreciate your prayers, not only for them, uh, but for that entire team. It's going to be an incredible trip. I know that our children's ministry is going to be blessed by her being able to walk in the same places that Jesus and the apostles have walked. I can't imagine what our kids are getting ready to learn up in Kids Live and all the other places that she's involved back there uh, as she has this experience. So just be, be praying for Kelly and for Philip. I know they'd appreciate that. I want to read through this text this morning uh, to start off with. So Acts chapter 5, verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? to lie to the Holy Spirit, and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Now when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me, whether you sold the land for so much? And she said, Yes, for so much. And Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all of her, all who heard of these things. Father, we pause and we acknowledge that the text that we have before us this morning is, is very troubling. And it raises a lot of questions. And Father, it may even stir up some fear and some apprehension even towards you. So Father, I pray that the only voice that's heard here this morning is your voice. And that you would guide us 
through this text and, and, and help us to understand what has happened here. Father, we love you. We thank you for this fellowship called Hyde Park. We thank you for this family that means so much to my family, for the friends that we have in this place, that, um, that Father, we, we count very dear to our hearts. I pray, Father, that we would be unified as never before in the mission that you've called us to, in the community which you've planted us, and, Father, that we will not let anything distract us or deter us from making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all things that you've commanded. We love you and we thank you for our time together in Christ's name. Amen. This text in Acts 5 has echoes all the way back into the Old Testament. When you're reading through the Old Testament, you'll come to to places in different chapters where you read it and, and you think about it and you go, wow, I'm so glad that that I'm living in the New Testament, New Covenant age and I live in the, the age of God's grace and, and back in the Old Testament when we see things happening that we have a hard time wrapping our arms around, we think about it as a different time, a different age, God's dealing with people in maybe a more harsh manner. In actuality, that's not true. The God of grace in the New Testament is the same God of grace of the Old Testament. But there are things that we come to in the text, both Old and New Testament, that, that quite frankly make us pause on our tracks for a little bit and go, what in the world is going on here? It makes us question maybe some presuppositions or some ideas that we have in our head about who God is and how He, how he responds and how He acts in the world. It, it, it makes us a little bit apprehensive at times. I can think of Joshua chapter 7. You don't have to turn back there, but I just want to give you a couple of examples. Joshua chapter 7. Joshua has taken over leadership of the nation Israel. Moses has died. Joshua has been walking with Moses for, for many years. He is the one God has selected to lead the nation. And as they begin to do what God had called them to do, to take the promised land, uh, they have several several uh, victories in a row that, quite frankly, without God's help, they couldn't have had. Remember, they've been wandering around in the desert for over 40 years. One whole generation had died off. The next generation, the younger generation, they were not skilled warriors. They, they, they were not strong army. They, did, they didn't have a strong battle sense to themselves. And so here's Joshua leading a bunch of people who've been wandering around in the desert for 40 years to take a land that was already inhabited by militarily strong people. Without God's help, it couldn't have happened. In the first chapters of Joshua, you see victory after victory, and then they come to a little little town called Ai. No big deal. Not a really strong uh, fortress. Not a really strong group of people. And just like they had won other victories, they're going to win this one in Joshua's mind. So Joshua sends some troops up, and they go up there to face Ai, and they absolutely get run over. I mean, they absolutely get steamrolled by this little community in Ai that they should have beaten easily. And then Joshua gets upset, and he actually gets upset with God. It's like, you've called us to this land. you called us to do this, and yet we go and face Ai, and we, we can't even beat them. And God says, come here, Joshua. Let me, let me uh, take you over here to the woodshed for just a moment. i got some things that you need to know. And he looks at Joshua. God speaks to Joshua, and he says to Joshua, Joshua, there is sin in the camp. You see, God had given them very clear instructions that when they went into Ai, they were not supposed to take any of the wealth from that community. 
And God tells Joshua, Joshua, there's sin in the camp. They have disobeyed me. And now, Joshua, you must find the person. Joshua calls the people before him, family by family, tribe by tribe. And they find a man by the name of Achan. And Achan goes into Ai and he steals some things from the community that he, he was clearly told not to do. And he takes it and he, and he buries it under his tent. And he thinks that nobody's going to know. He thinks that everything's okay. And that out of his greed, he's able to take whatever he wants, disregard what God had commanded. And as a result, not only did Achan and his family have to pay a price, but the entire community of Israel was suffering because of one man's sin. You know what happened to Achan and his family? It's one of those moments when you read it, you kind of sit back in your chair and you kind of take a deep breath of air for a moment. The entire family of Achan was struck down, killed. You begin to wonder, God, is, 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 was this what you wanted? Yes, it's exactly what God wanted. And, and you wrestle with the idea of, of what you're being taught in culture, that God is altogether love and there's no way that God could judge anyone. And yet we're faced with, an Old Testament narrative where he does exactly that. Well, it's just the Old Testament. You know, God was different back then. Well, let's jump over to 2 Samuel chapter 6. You don't have to turn over there, but another story. David is now king. He's been anointed king. He's been set apart as king. Saul is no longer in the frame. He's, he's died in battle. David is kind of getting everything lined up. And one of the things that David wants to do is get the Ark of the Covenant to reside with the people. And it's just a beautiful opportunity to worship and experience the presence of God. And they're going to they're bring the Ark of the Covenant that, that represented the presence of God among His people, and they're going to bring it into the camp. And a, a simple little thing, nothing, nothing really serious as far as what was had to be done or planned to get this done. They, they put the Ark of the Covenant on a cart. And as the cart is being pulled, the cart is shaking, and there's a guy there by the name of Uzzah. He's just a guy trying to help out. And he notices that the cart is shaking and the Ark of the Covenant is shaking. So, so Uzzah takes it upon himself. And now Uzzah was not a priest. He was not a Levite. He, he's just an average guy trying to help out. He wants to steady the Ark while it's shaking on the car. So he, he puts his hand out and he touches the Ark of the Covenant. And he drops dead in his tracks. What's that all about? Why, why would a man who's trying to do the right thing and try to help out, why, why, would, why would God strike him dead? And then we explain it away by thinking, well, that's the Old Testament. That's just how God does things in the Old Testament. Well, what are you going to do with Acts 5? Because in Acts 5, we've got a husband and a wife who drop dead within three hours of each other for the sins that they commit, which we'll talk about in just a moment. Is that causing you a problem with the God of the New Testament that we've kind of decided in our mind is the God of grace? God has never changed, not even a single moment. The same God you read about in the Old Testament is the same God you read about in the New Testament, and He's the same God who will be forevermore, eternity, as far as you want to talk about in the future, and as far as you want to go back in the past. God has not changed, and He never will. Now, here's what we've got to get our arms around this morning. God and His power, His majesty, His holiness, His righteousness is so far above us, we can't even begin to wrap our minds around it. Let me explain. God is perfect in every possible way you want to think about it. And let me, let me just say this. Our human language is even limited 
and being able to try to describe the perfection and the holiness of God. We, we, we can describe it in a lot of different ways, but we still fall so short that God is not like us. He's separate from us. He's higher than us. He's more perfect than we could ever possibly be. And therefore, God is not your best friend forever. God is not something you can lower down and just kind of put your arm around and hang out with your friend. God is separate from us, holier than us, more perfect than us, more majestic than us, and more powerful than we will ever be able to possibly imagine. And as such, the only way that we can approach this powerful, majestic, holy, righteous God is through the blood of Jesus Christ, the righteous Son who died to make that possible. You have nothing in you, no good within you, that can bring you into the presence of a holy God and be able to survive it because your unrighteousness and your sin and your evil, the things that the thing that you, you were born into and that you chose to participate in, it has separated you from God, and there's no way that someone as unrighteous as me could ever possibly have a right relationship with God except through Jesus Christ. You see, what Jesus Christ did by shedding His blood and me putting my faith in Him and repenting and turning from my old life, and the last person I want you to hear me clearly here, you must put faith in Christ and you must turn from your old life. And what happens in that moment is that, that God adopts us as a son. He justifies us, which basically means that he declares us righteous. Now, it's not because of my good works, because I have none. It's because of Jesus' perfection and his blood and his sacrifice. And through that, God declares me righteous. And get this, God has declared me a saint. If you're a Christ follower, you're a saint. Now, as soon as I say that, you think, well, I don't know about that. I might be a saint, but, but you guys aren't, right? No, we're all saints if we're followers of Jesus. Our position, our relationship to God has changed. And through Christ, we now have a relationship with God we could not have otherwise. But it doesn't change the reality that God is holy. He's separate. He's higher. He's majestic. It doesn't change any of that. What it changes is, is that we now get to have communion with Him, but we still must reverence Him. And yes, we should have a godly fear for this one who can speak and the universe is hung in the place. When we begin to understand the holiness and the righteousness of God, when we begin to just scratch the surface of that, we'll begin to understand what's happening in Joshua chapter 7. We'll begin to understand what happens there in 2 Samuel chapter 6, and we're going to be able to understand what's happening in Acts chapter 5. That not only is God holy, but what else we're going to find out is that God loves the church. And God's desire for the church is that the church be unified and that the church be pure. That the only way we can accomplish the mission that we've been called to accomplish is that we are unified, one body, one spirit, one baptism, together, as Paul describes in Ephesians 4, that we are unified, and God takes threats to that unity very seriously. And, and guess where Satan tries to attack? More often, in the American church especially, but from the inside. The church has had to face opposition from the outside, just like the church here in Acts. This church, as you've seen in the previous chapters with Ryan last week and me two weeks ago, that persecution is, is rising up. There is an outside opposition 
to the name of Jesus being proclaimed, that He's resurrected, that, that He must be surrendered to. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious rulers, are beginning to push back really hard and to begin to make threats. Eventually, it's going to become physical later in chapter 5 next week. The American church. We've not had to face a lot of persecution. There's been times down through history that, yes, the American church had to deal with it. Opposition from the outside. Opposition from the outside is growing today at an exponential rate. The church today in America is getting to the place where it's, it's hated, especially a church that stands for the gospel. So it could be that, that my kids and my grandkids, as they grow up in, in America, they may face persecution like many of our brothers and sisters in other countries are having to face. But right now, and for many years, we've never really had to face a lot of outside persecution. So where has Satan been doing his work? Where has Satan done some of his best work? From the inside. In the Bible Belt, where we live, the hometown that I'm from, up in the mountains, there are churches on every corner. In, in my county alone, the county that I grew up in, there's over 220 Baptist churches. Get that for just a moment. Baptist churches, independent uh, Southern Baptist, all, I mean, Baptist churches, that many churches. You can't throw a rock in any direction without hitting a steeple. Churches everywhere. Now, you could say on the one hand, well, maybe there's so many lost people in Wills County that, that there had to be that many churches so that they could effectively reach. I would love to say that was true, but that's not the case. Here's what happened. Church A has a disagreement inside of the church, and they turn into factions. One faction is for this, another faction is for this. They can't seem to get along. So this faction says, you know what? We're going to bail out. We're going to go. We got a pastor over here. We got us a preacher. We got us a building. Goodbye. And they go start another church. And then in a few years, there's another disagreement. You think I'm making this up. I'm not. I, I can tell you of one church that started out, and there's four other churches as a result of this one church just simply because of four splits. Four splits. I can go show you the buildings. I can take you down the streets in Wills County and say, that was the first church, second one, third one, fourth one, fifth, and all because there was no unity. And Satan laughs. And I'll tell you why Satan laughs about this. It's because none of those five churches are reaching anybody. they got about 13 to 20 people in all five of those buildings. Yeah, the, the pressure, the attack for the American church has been predominantly on the inside. And you know where he attacks? Unity. Purity. Acts chapter 5 gives us some insight into how much God loves the church and how much God is willing to do to protect the church from division and impurity. Now, there's a question you've got in your mind right now. Well, if, if God does this in Acts 5, is he still doing it today? I'll answer that question by the time we get to the end. Let's take a look at Acts chapter 4. We've got to back up in Acts chapter 4 to get a contrast of what's happening here. So Acts chapter 4, verse 32, look at this. Now the full member, full number of those who were believed were of one heart and one soul. Now I want you to get the weight of that. But the time we get to Acts 4 and Acts 5, there could be more than 10,000 people who put their faith in Jesus Christ. 
They are continually continuing to teach the apostles' doctrine. They're continuing to train and disciple and equip. And those people are out in the streets telling other people about Jesus. This thing is snowballing. This thing is, is, is absolutely growing exponentially. But I want you to see that the full number, whether that number be 8,000 or 10,000, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. I think that's incredible. That they are so unified in the mission. They are so unified in their love for one another. Luke describes them as one heart, one soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to them was his own, but they had everything in common. So just just before you think that this is some kind of superficial commitment to Christ, let's look at this. The people who were in this church, this 10,000 strong, they looked at all the things that they had, and some people in the church were very wealthy, some were extremely poor and everything in between. And the ones who had means and, and wealth, they would look at what they had and they would say, you know what, I don't own this. this. This is not mine. God has entrusted it to me through His grace and through His mercy. Therefore, it's not mine. And therefore, what I have needs to be used for God's glory and for His kingdom. And, and I look at my brothers and sisters in, in, in the church body here and I find people who are starving to death. I find people who have no clothes. I find people who have nothing. It wasn't commanded by the apostles. It wasn't commanded by Peter and James or John. But under the direction of the Holy Spirit, these people begin to sell their own property and give it to the church and to those in need all around them. What a beautiful, beautiful act of love. Not only that, verse 33, with great power, the apostles were given their testimony to the resurrection of Jesus and great grace was upon them all. The, the 120, the ones who spend, the, the apostles who spent time with Jesus, they're telling everybody they come in contact with about the resurrection, about what Jesus accomplished. And great grace was upon them all. I love that phrase because if it were not for God's grace, none of this would be happening. If it was not for God's grace, this body of believers would never be able to be unified. If it were not for God's grace, all of us, different backgrounds, different socioeconomic levels, different, different education levels, all kinds of differences between us. If it were not for God's grace upon us, there is no way we could ever be unified. But yet, here we are. God's grace. There was not a needy person among them. For as many were owners of lands and houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each who had any need. And then in verse 36, we get introduced to somebody. Luke is, is famous for doing this, both in his gospel and in this book. He'll, he'll introduce somebody, and we won't hear anything else about them for maybe several chapters, and then all of a sudden they come back up. Well, Joseph is one of those guys. You know him better as Barnabas. Barnabas was a nickname that the apostles had given to Joseph because of what they saw in his life. And what they saw in his life was a man who was encouraging others. In other words, here is a man who just loves to love other people. Man, what a, what a great nickname to have. Son of encouragement. So Barnabas is a man of, well, wealth. He's got some, some wealth. He's been able to acquire some things. The Bible tells us here that his name was Joseph. They gave him the nickname of Barnabas. He's a Levite. He's a native of Cyprus. Cyprus was an island about 200 and 
30 miles from Jerusalem out into the Mediterranean Sea. That's where he was from. Now, Joseph or Barnabas looks at the church and he looks at what's going on and because they're one body and one soul, one spirit, he sees what's going on. He sees the need and the Holy Spirit prompts Barnabas to sell that piece of property that he owns over in Cyprus. What's interesting about that is, is he's a Levite. If you go back to the Old Testament and you look at the law for the Levites, the Levites were not allowed to own any property. So, so how could he own property if he's a Levite? Well, there's a couple possibilities here. One possibility, and I think this is actually what's going on, is families would have land and they would pass it down generation to generation. That land was to be used as a burial site for their families. You see this all over in the Old Testament where a person would be buried with their family members. And I, I believe that, that Barnabas has this piece of land that's in Cyprus that has been handed down through his family for many years. And when he looks at it, he weighs out what's most important. And in that moment, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, he makes the decision that the people in the church, the fellowship of believers, his new family in Christ, are in need. And while he probably could have had a lot of reasons not to sell it, he makes the 250-mile journey back to Cyprus, sells the property, and if that property was owned by his family, it's almost as though he's basically saying goodbye to Cyprus. He's saying goodbye to his family burial plot, and he's going to go back to Jerusalem, and he's going to take the money, and he's going to lay it, all of it, at the feet of the disciples. What an incredible act of love. No wonder he's called the son of encouragement. Here's a guy who makes the sacrifice, not because he wants to be seen, not because he wants to be put on a platform. He simply does what the Holy Spirit asks him to do, and he gives. Now pick up Acts 5.1. But a man, notice that, see that word but? Now we have a contrast. Now we have Barnabas. Now I want you to notice Ananias and Sapphira. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. So far, so good. They look at what's going on in the church. Uh, apparently this man and this wife have put their faith in Jesus at some point because they're included in the body of Christ here. And somewhere along the journey, maybe it was under Peter's preaching after Pentecost. Maybe it was at Solomon's colonnade within the temple grounds. Somewhere along the journey, these two pe people apparently responded to Christ and responded to the gospel by faith. So they look around and they go, look at all these people selling their stuff and giving it to those in need. We need to do the same thing. There's a problem, though. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, I want to be very clear here. They were never commanded to sell the property. They were, they were never commanded to give the full amount to the church. This is something they decided to do. Then apparently there were several within the church body that were doing this and doing it for the right reasons with the right motivation. But Ananias and Sapphira have a little meeting, a little closed-door meeting among themselves. And I don't know what that meeting looks like, but based on what's happening in this text, let me tell you what I think happened. They begin to talk about the sale of this property and how much money that it was going to bring in. And I don't know if it was Ananias or Sapphira. Probably Ananias brings up the idea, hey, you know what? We could keep back a percentage. Well, let's just say 20%. We could keep 20% of the sale. We could take the other 80% and go lay it at Peter's feet, and we could tell Peter and the church that this is the whole amount. 
In other words, they're going to deceive Peter and the leadership of the church. They are going to lie and say that this is the full amount when in fact it's not. All for the hope of being seen as religious, pious, upright people. Contrast that with what Barnabas did. Ananias and Sapphira, it says here, look at verse 2. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back. You see those three words? There's three words in English, one word in the Greek. And this one word in the Greek is a very interesting word. It's very used very little. There, there is a, a Greek translation of the Old Testament. It was written, written many, 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 many years ago. And in that Greek translation of the Old Testament, remember the Old Testament is predominantly Hebrew and a little bit of Aramaic in the language, but there was a Greek translation written. And in that Greek translation, the same Greek word that is used right there held some back. He kept some back. It's the same word that the translators for the Greek Old Testament used in Joshua chapter 7 when Achan held back some of the wealth from Ai. The Greek word actually means to embezzle. It actually means to deceive, to to secretly appropriate somebody else's funds for themselves. But now wait a minute. They sold their property, a property they owned. How can you embezzle from yourself? Well, here's the problem. And this is what Barnabas understood and what Ananias and Sapphira misunderstood. Barnabas understood that everything that he owned was not his at all anyway. In other words, he didn't own the property in Cyprus. God owned it and allowed him to use it. And when God said it's time to give it up, he gave it up. Ananias and Sapphira saw the property that they sold as their own. It was their personal property. Therefore, the money was their personal money. And therefore, they get to decide what to do with that money. That wasn't their money. It never was. They made a commitment to give it all to God, but yet they didn't. So well, who have they stolen from? Who did Ananias and Sapphira really steal from? They stole from God and the church and from Peter and from those who would have benefited from their giving. Peter says to them, verse 3, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? In other words, this this property was under your care. You, You could have chose to keep it. You were not compelled to sell it. You didn't have to do any of this. But the very moment you made that commitment and then lied about that commitment, now we've got a problem. And Peter describes it this way. And I I want to offer to you, even more than Ananias and Sapphira dropping dead where they stood, this particular verse brings me more trouble than anything I see in this text. And it's right here what Peter said. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? I don't know about you, but that troubles me deeply. And the reason that it troubles me deeply is because if these two people had put their faith in Jesus, and it become part of the body of Christ. What is Peter saying here? Is Peter saying that, that these two people are now somehow possessed by the devil? No, I don't think that's the case. Are they under the influence of Satan and the forces of darkness? Yes, absolutely. Because I firmly believe anybody who's been born again, I believe the Bible backs me up in this, any person who's been born again and has the Holy Spirit living in them cannot, cannot, cannot be possessed by demonic power. Can you be influenced? Absolutely. Let me show you James chapter 1. 
I think James chapter 1 is going to give us a little bit of insight into what's happening here. And it's the same thing that we struggle with day in and day out when Satan begins or the forces of darkness begin to tempt and how we respond. James chapter 1. If you've read the book of James, and I know that for those of you who've been going through the 40 days of prayer, our devotionals have been connected to James, the last 30 of them anyway. And as you know, the book of James is a, how can I put this, kind of a harsh book. It's a hard book to read, folks. It's short. I'm glad it's short. But it, it doesn't, um, how can I put this? It, it gets right to the point. If, if you're looking for something nice and easy and cushy, don't read the book of James because it will convict you deeply. James writing here, let's start in verse 12. Chapter 1, verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. James indicates that every follower of Christ is going to come under trial. You're going to be tested. You're going, you're going to, have to go under some things. You're going to go through some things that's going to maybe cause you to waver in your faith, and, and you need to be aware of that. He says, but blessed is the man who remains steadfast, unmovable, under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive a crown of life. James says, if you will continue to endure and continue to have your feet planted in the gospel, the presence and the power of God and the Holy Spirit, then at the end of this thing, at the end of this thing that we call this messed up world, when we stand before God, there's going to be a reward, a crown of life, which God has promised to those who love Him. And, and you know that God always keeps His promises. Verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. So James wants us to understand before he gets into this next part. First of all, you've got to understand that if you're undergoing some temptation, that temptation is not from God, for God is perfect and holy and righteous. There's no shadow of darkness in Him at all. If you are being tempted to do something outside of God's plan for your life, that is not coming from God, and we need to understand where the source of that is. The source is darkness, Satan, His dominion. James says this. He says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Every single person in this room was knit together in your mother's womb by God himself. You are precious. You're one of a kind. There is no one else on the globe like you. Even if you have a twin, you're still different. And God put you together and he's given you a span of time to live. And not only has he put you together, but you bear the image of God, which means there's some qualities about God that God has instilled in you. You have the ability to show emotion, to love, to have anger. You have the ability to, to logically make decisions. Two plus two is four. You have the ability to do those kinds of things. And so that's part of the faculty that God gave you as part of his image. It says here, being enticed by your own desire. In other words, when you're created by God, you were given some desire. Right now, you have a desire to go get lunch. I got that, okay? We'll get you out of here and you can go get lunch. But there's a desire inside of you. You have a desire to be, to be able to love someone and to be loved. Did you know that that was one of your base desires that God created you with, that, that you, you desire to be loved and appreciated by somebody and you desire to show love and appreciation to another person? That's part of who you are. 
you have a you have a desire inside of you that God built inside of you to to progress, to to grow, to help your family, to to get a career, to be motivated to accomplish some things in your life. That's all part of what God gave you in that image. But did you know that when those desires are used in ways outside of God's design, they bring destruction into your life? That the desire to love and to be loved, when it manifests itself in lust outside of marriage, that that is a sin and no longer honoring to God? And not only that, that it will bring destruction into your life? That the desire to have things can overwhelm you so much that it turns into greed and envy and covetousness and jealousy for other people. And, and what God meant for you to be able to work out in your life and bring Him honor turns out to be something that you try to grasp and grab for your own benefit. Notice what James says. The desire is already there. But here comes Satan. Now remember, temptation does not come from God. It comes from Darkness. And what does Satan do? Well, he lures and he entices. Now, you're going to have to bear with me because I'm going to have to throw out a fishing analogy. Okay, you just got to bear with me. So I like to fly fish. Not very good at it. I'm getting better at it, but I'm not real good at it. Trout season will be opening up soon. One of the, one of the skills that I haven't acquired very well yet, my brother-in-law has, I have it, is you go into the river, and what you're going to do is you're going to, before you even start fishing, you got to figure out, what kind of bugs are on the river? And, and trout will only eat what is available at that particular season. So let's say that there's some kind of stonefly that, that's very prominent on the river in spring because they hatch out in the spring. That trout in that stream will not eat anything else except what is being presented on the stream at that particular time. So if I put a fly on my fly rod that is from October, it may look pretty, but if I put that thing on the water and that trout's backed up into those rocks, he will not touch it. doesn't matter how great it looks. doesn't matter how much I present it. doesn't matter how much I put it in front of his face. He will not hit it because that's not what he wants. It hasn't stirred up that desire to come up out of those depths and to grab that fly. But let me put the right fly on there of flies that are on the river in June. He can't, he can't help it. He just can't resist it. When he hits the water, that trout will come up out of that rock and he'll hit it and he'll come up out of the water to get that fly. And you know what happens, right? When he gets the fly, he didn't get the fly. I got him. And that's a good day. That's a good day on the river. Because then I bring that joker in. I put him in my net at that point, right? That's the whole point. Satan lures and entices. And you know what? He's very specific in what he does. You see, he, he knows what gets your clock running. He, he knows some things you are kind of prevalent towards. And and Satan has this ability to put in front of you some things that will stir up that desire inside of you so that you will then act on that desire outside of God's will to fulfill those desires outside of God's plan for your life. And notice what James says next. He says that when temptation and desire get together, when temptation and desire get together, in other words, you act on it, guess what happens? Well, they have a baby. Paul, James says it right here. He says, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. Temptation, desire, get together. They have a baby. It's called sin. And guess what? That sin grows up. And that sin gets very demanding. That sin wants more and more and more. That thing in your life 
that you engaged in, you felt bad about it. You felt really bad about going after that thing. So you, you pray the prayer of repentance. You go through the motions only to two or three months, two or three weeks, two or three hours later, go right back to the same thing because it's been put in front of you and you justify in your own mind how it's no big deal. Then it grows up. Look at those last two words. I want you to see this. Sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You see, you never planned for it to go that far, right? You, you never planned on the addiction taking you that far. You, you never planned on the lust destroying your marriage. You, you never planned on this issue, this habit in your life, separating your kids from the gospel and from them putting faith in Jesus simply because you got an anger issue. You didn't, you didn't realize that, did you? Go back to Acts 5. Acts 5. So here we are. Ananias is standing before Peter. Peter says, you have allowed Satan to fill your heart. You, you have allowed Satan to put a temptation in front of you, and you have acted on it. And I want you to really see this. Filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? What does it mean to lie to the Holy Spirit? And in essence, lie to God. When Satan is putting that thing in front of you that you keep going back to, between the moment of seeing the temptation and acting on it, there's a span of time that happens right there. It can be short. It can be long. Satan is patient. The forces of darkness are patient. They'll keep putting it out there. But there's some time that goes by. You know, you know what's happening in that time between the temptation and, and acting on it? It's the justification in our mind where we start going, is it really that big a deal? Everybody's doing it. Or nobody's ever going to know. I can do this, and I can act like this way, and I can participate in this, and nobody's going to be any wiser. I can still go to church, and I can still praise God. I can still do all of these things. It doesn't really matter. God is not concerned about this little thing in my life. What's the big deal? You know what that is? That is lying not only to the Holy Spirit, but you're lying to yourself because you know better. You know what the truth of God's Word says? You know that the Holy Spirit in that moment is convicting you and is telling you that that mess leads to destruction, but yet you keep putting your eyes on it, you keep looking on it, and the next thing you know, you start wanting it, and then you begin to lie to yourself and lie to the Holy Spirit, and then you act on it. Peter says that he lied to the Holy Spirit, and then in verse... Four, he says, you've not lied to man, but you've lied to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down, and he died. His wife comes in three hours later. In that three-hour time, Ananias is being buried. They did a bit more get the dirt covered up on that grave and make their way back to wherever this was happening. And Sapphira is there. She has no idea that her husband died right where she's standing. And I would imagine that Peter still has the money laid out. He still got it laid out there. And, and see, Peter already knows what's going on. How did Peter know this? How did Peter know that Ananias had done this? Did he read his facial expressions? Did he just have a hunch? No, I think it was by divine revelation that Peter knew exactly what had happened here. God revealed it right to Peter. I think Peter's expecting the wife to show up. She walks in. The money's laying there, and Peter says, Is this the full amount of the sale of that property? And without hesitation, she says, Yes, for so much. 
But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit? Notice that. He says to Ananias, you've been lying. He says to her, you're testing the Spirit. You know right from wrong. In other words, Satan didn't make her do it. Satan didn't make Ananias do it. They both had a choice. Just like you have a choice. The whole idea that we laugh about it, we think it's kind of a cliche statement, but, well, you know, I'm sorry, but Satan made me do it. No, he didn't. You chose. All he did was put it in front of you. Nobody's forcing you to look at things on the Internet that are ungodly. No, that's a choice. Nobody's forcing you to take another hit of whatever stuff you're putting in your body to forget all your problems. No, that's a choice. Ananias and Sapphira made a choice. And, And here it is. She's affirming that. And and he says, Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door. They will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. Now, does God still do this? Is God still doing this same thing? I mean, we said at the very beginning, God doesn't change. So so did anybody fall out when the offering plates went by? All right, praise God. Good. We got through another day, right? All I can say to you is, that God in His infinite grace and His infinite mercy has decided to give us chance after chance after chance after chance. But could God do this? Yes, He can. Let me tell you why I know that. I cannot tell you how many funerals I've had to officiate that the person laying in that casket decided that they were going to live their own life and do their own thing and make their own choices and not have to worry about it, and they justified it long enough And their life ended way too short because of the choices that they were making. Well, Pastor, are you saying that that God took them out? What I'm saying to you is I don't know, but I can tell you this. I've had far too many funerals of far too many young people that had a lot of life ahead of them. And the reason that they were in that place at that moment with that casket is because of foolish sin and disobedience. I don't want to keep doing that because the family is the ones left behind and they hurt tremendously because of the choices that a loved one made. I have seen people who didn't lose their life but lost everything else. There are people sitting in this room right now that if they could come up here and give you a testimony, here's what they would say. There are things that I did that were so bad that was it was worse. The circumstances was worse than death. As a matter of fact, if death had have happened, it would have been a lot easier for me to move on because it would have just ended. But no, it was worse. The pain and the suffering of my own foolishness and my own circumstances, I could testify to that. I can testify that in my 20s, the decisions that I was making brought so much pain in my life and so much bad circumstance into my life. Even though I was born again, God was chastising me and putting me through trial after trial to get my attention simply because I was taking every lure that Satan put in front of my face, thinking I was living it up. And it was leading to death. I think what's happening in Acts 5, I think... I think Luke is describing something that happened. 
He's not prescribing something. He's not saying that this is going to be how God operates in the church from now on. He's simply saying that in that moment, in that moment, God took out two people. And why do you think he did it? Yes, lying to the Holy Spirit. Yes, being greedy and selfish and wanting to look as though they're pious. But here's the reason. It goes back to chapter 4, verse 31, 32, where it says, the church was of one heart and one soul. And God loved the unity, still does, the unity and the purity of the church to a degree that he's willing to take some radical steps to protect that unity and to protect that purity. It may not be two people dropping dead, but it may be people who are removed from a fellowship because they simply will not follow and surrender to Christ. One of the hardest things that I've ever had to do as a, as a pastor is, um, is ask someone to leave a fellowship. You may be surprised by this, especially if you're new to the church, but Jesus talked about this in Matthew chapter 18. And he said that if there's a brother or sister that simply will not, will not seek forgiveness or restoration, if there's sin between a brother and a sister inside the fellowship of Christ, that that the unity of the church is so important that we must deal with that? We have to. Because the purity and the testimony of the church is vitally important to us accomplishing the mission that God has put in front of us. So therefore, Jesus spoke the words to the disciples, and he says, if you've got a difference with a brother or sister, that you've got to sit down, you've got to work through that, and the goal is to regain that brother or sister back in a right fellowship. The, the goal has always been to reconcile and to love one another and to move forward. But if you get to the end of that, that text there, Matthew 18, Jesus says something that's shocking. He says, if after several attempts of trying to reconcile, the person simply will not. You know what Jesus says? He says, remove them from the fellowship. Now, why would Jesus say that? Well, why would Jesus say, that you need to part ways. They, they must leave. You, you, he actually says, turn them over as if they are lost. That's harsh, isn't it? It's because the unity and the purity of the church is so vitally important to our mission and what God has called us to do that God has put in place ways to work through things. And if we can't work through them, then the unity of the church, and the purity of the church must be kept intact. And it's not anything we look forward to doing. We don't use it as something to beat each other over the head with. But if we're not one, one body, one spirit, and we're not walking together in the spirit, then there's no way we could ever possibly accomplish what God has called us to. Lying to the Holy Spirit. Lying to make yourself look better trying to present your way, yourself in such a way that you are completely righteous, good, and complete, while all the while lying to the Holy Spirit, lying to God, lying to yourself, and acting on everything that Satan puts in your path. The New Testament has another word for that, and that word is hypocrisy. Ananias and Sapphira lost their life because of it. 
Don't allow Satan to keep dragging you down into such a mess to where death would be a relief. Don't let Satan keep putting that thing in front of you and you engaging it to the point to where you have lost every bit of your hope, joy, testimony, and otherwise simply because your flesh is running your life. You know why we've done 40 days of prayer? You know why, you know why we, part of that 40 days of prayer, we introduced 10 days of fasting. You know why we did that? So that we can learn some new habits in our life to where we can finally hear from the Lord, sit at His feet, and have Him change our life where we get our priorities straight and we begin to see that there is nothing greater in this world than sitting at the feet of our Creator. Nothing. Better than food, better than the internet, better than cell phones, better than entertainment. There is nothing in this world better than sitting and listening to your Father when He wants to speak to your soul. There's no better way to stay away from the temptations that Satan is putting in your path than linger long with your Father. So Father, we ask during this time of commitment that uh, you would speak clearly to our heart and our soul. Sometimes, Father, when we come to a text like this, um, it's, it's a hard text to walk through because of the questions that it raises in our minds. And, Father, I'm sure that I wasn't able to answer every question here. But, Father, one thing that I'm certain of, where we began the services with your steadfastness, we even sung about it, of your faithfulness. And, Father, I, I don't know where the people in this room are today in their walk with you. What I do know is that whatever failures they have in their life, whatever disobedience they have in their life, whatever hypocrisy that is there, your grace is sufficient. Father, the church lived by your grace. They lived day in and day out completely on your favor. And so it is with us. And Father, that grace is sufficient to forgive us of all unrighteousness and to restore us into a right fellowship with you. Father, for the lost person in this room, I've heard it so many times from people who have never put their faith in you that they look around at the church, they look around at family members who claim to be followers of you and they see that their life is no different. And Father, in the mind of the lost person, they begin to justify in their mind that if that person, if that family member is following Jesus and still doing what they're doing, then, then everybody must be going to heaven. I must be okay. We're all okay. But Father, for the lost person in this room, I want them to understand that they're lying to themselves. And Father, they're rejecting the only thing that will bring them life based on what they see in another person's life. But Father, my desire would be to direct their attention to Jesus Christ, the righteous, the perfect Son of God. And Father, when we look at Him, we will see just how far we fall short. For the lost person in this room who's trying to justify their actions by the actions of another person, I pray, Father, that would all melt away today. They will give an account for every sin they've committed. And unless they put their faith in Jesus, they will, they will experience your full wrath. Have your will in your way in this moment as we sing this last song. In Christ's name, amen. 
Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist. 